Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil. I'm Rasha Pecorero. And I'm Yvette Gentile, and this week we're talking about the case of Trisha Miley, also known by most as the Central Park Jogger. And for those of you who don't know about this case, in April of 1989, Trisha was brutally attacked and then raped while running in the park one night. And later, five African-American and Latino teenagers were arrested for the crime. They came to be known as the Central Park Five. And the biggest issue in this case is that the Central Park Five were innocent and were wrongfully convicted. So today we'll be talking with Jason Flom, who hosts and produces a podcast literally called Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. I've listened to a few of his episodes and he is beyond inspiring and he is an absolute expert. But first, our producer, Trevor, is going to walk us through today's case. 30 years ago, the case of the Central Park Five shook New York City to its core. Today, it stands as a cautionary tale of injustice. I ended up being attacked and beaten, bound, gagged, and raped. I have no memory of it uh, because of the brain injury. Investigators quickly focused on a group of black and Hispanic boys who were in the park that night. Soon as we get in, they separate us and they start working on us. And I'm hearing Corey being physically beaten in the next room. Trisha Miley was a 28-year-old woman who was beaten, raped, and left for dead one night in Central Park in New York City. Trisha had been raised in a suburb outside of Pittsburgh. She was a passionate athlete, naturally competitive, and as she put it herself, quote, a fighter all her life. Trisha eventually moved to New York City, where she worked at the financial firm Solomon Brothers, where she often worked late. On the night of April 19, 1989, Trisha Miley left her apartment for a jog just before 9 p.m. and headed for the park. That night, a group of about 30 teenagers from East Harlem reportedly entered Central Park from the park's north side. Police had been getting reports of attacks against cyclists and joggers, 
by roving bands of teens. According to one police officer, a school teacher who was beaten with a lead pipe, quote, looked like he was dunked in a bucket of blood. At 10.15 p.m. that night, police arrested two of the teenagers, Raymond Santana and Kevin Richardson, both 14 years old. Raymond and Kevin named 33 other teenagers who'd been out that night, and police would eventually arrest three more. Antron McRae, 15, Youssef Salam, 15, and Corey Wise, who was 16. All five were black and lived in East Harlem. At 1.30 a.m. that morning, police found Trisha Miley in a ravine 300 feet off of 122nd Street. The first officer who found her said, quote, she was beaten as badly as anybody I've ever seen beaten. She looked like she was tortured, end quote. She had lost 75 to 80% of her blood and had suffered brain damage and internal bleeding. Her left eye socket was fractured so badly that the eye had been dislodged. The only parts of her body that were left unbruised were the soles of her feet. And now, the interrogation of the five teen boys took an intense turn, lasting nearly 24 hours. The boys later claimed that the officers told them that if they would confess, they could go home. And they did submit a videotaped confession, although one of them, Yusef Salam, gave a written confession that he refused to sign. There were no lawyers or parents present at this interrogation. The boys quickly recanted their statements, but it was too late. At a press conference, police announced that they'd found the perpetrators, and their names quickly got out to press. Many news stories presumed their guilt. About a month later, the same day Trisha Miley woke up from her coma, Donald Trump took out full-page ads in all of New York's major newspapers, calling to bring back the death penalty for the teens. Miley described her attacker as a young man with stitches on his chin. A detective consulted local hospitals for a man matching that description. He was given the name Matia Reyes, a 17-year-old who worked in a bodega near the crime scene. The detective never followed up on that lead. In the years that followed, Reyes would go on to rape at least two more women. Meanwhile, the Central Park Five, as they came to be known, were convicted of crimes ranging from sexual abuse to rape to attempted murder, despite the fact that none of the boys could pinpoint the location of the attack. And all five came up with different, incorrect timelines of the attack on Trisha Miley. There was also a staggering lack of DNA, physical or forensic evidence connecting any of them to the crime. All five got the maximum sentence. It wasn't until 2002 that Matia Reyes came forward and confessed that he'd been the one to rape Miley. He provided details of the attack that were corroborated by DNA evidence. The new district attorney conducted an investigation, after which the city withdrew all charges against the Central Park Five. By this time, all but Raymond Santana and Corey Wise had already completed their sentences. Collectively, they sued the city and reached a $41 million settlement in 2013. And so, what actually happened to Trisha Miley? And what does the wrongful conviction of these five young men of color tell us about the flawed and biased justice system used to find them guilty? So today we are going to discuss Trisha, the Central Park Five, and then we're going to have a more organic 
and open conversation about the issue of wrongful conviction. And joining us today to talk about all of that is Jason Flom. And although Jason is famous as a former big executive for record companies like Capital, Virgin, and Atlantic, among others, Jason has spent years fighting for justice and raising awareness of wrongful conviction. He's worked as a board member with the Innocence Project and also hosts a podcast called Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. We are so honored and excited to have you here with us today. Welcome, Jason, to Facing Evil. Oh, what a nice introduction. I'm going to get all weepy here in a minute. You know? oh, yeah. We love that. Um, yes. And uh, thank you for that. I am, in fact, the founding board member of the Innocence Project. Definitely not the founder. The founders are Peter Newfeld and Barry Sheck. But I've been with them from for a long, long time. Very proud of the organization and what it stands for and the work that we do. And the podcast, of course, is Wrongful Conviction. And we're now, Jesus, over 40 million listens um, and Ooh, growing. Wow. So um, join us. Uh, the stories are amazing. Every week is mind-blowing. So, um, yeah, so I'm glad to be here with you all and excited to do this interview. Let's let's get it on. Let's go. Let's roll. I know. Well, I would love to know, how did you get here? So I got into this. Back around the time your parents were probably meeting before they even thought about having you all. No. But they, um, so in 1993, I was, um, I was on my way to go somewhere in a taxi, and I would, went to the newsstand to buy the New York Times, and it was sold out, so I bought the Post. Now, no one should ever buy the Post unless you really need something to clean up what your dog is doing on the street with, you know. But I did because I wanted something to read. You know, there was no, there was no phones to carry around and read everything on back then. So right. uh, there was an article in the Post that I was obviously meant to read, and it was a story of a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State. And I was like... What'd you say? Right. Uh, come again now? I knew nothing about the drug laws at the time. I, I, I knew a lot about drugs because I had been to rehab and I had had my own issues with substance abuse. But it just blew my mind because I was like, he was 32, I was 32. It could have been me. You know, I was like, wow. um, you know, he, he had been in prison for six, eight years already. I had been sober for almost eight years. I was like, that the roles could have been reversed, you know? So Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I decided I got to do something about this. I knew nothing about anything. I had a mullet and purple Doc Martens, you know. Of course you did. But I got to do something. So I got the only attorney, I, the only criminal defense lawyer I knew back then. Now I know hundreds of them. I got okay. the only one I could think of was a guy named Bob Kalina. He represented two of my artists, Stone Temple Pilots and Skid Row, and they were getting arrested weekly back then. So yep. I had him on speed dial. Yep. And long story short, I got him to take the case pro bono. Six months later, we end up in a courtroom in Malone, New York. I'm sitting there holding the kid's mother's hand. They bring him in in shackles like he's freaking, you know, the Night Stalker or something, right? Mm. Some mass murderer. For cocaine possession. Yeah. And uh, the arguments go back and forth. The judge was an old guy with white hair. I was like, this is not going to go well. In any case, the judge said blah, 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 whatever he said, banged the gavel down and said the motion is granted. And I was like, whoa, what just happened? Wow. Uh, I was like, oh, Ooh. I think I may actually have a superpower. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do now. And so it's what I've been doing ever since. Today, Jason, like we want to jump into this, right? The Central Park Five. And what I want to ask you is, what do you remember about that case? And where were you when it happened? I was in New York, born in New York, lived in New York my whole life. 
So this was a major, I mean, I, major doesn't begin mm. to describe it. It was a frenzy. It was a media frenzy of epic proportions. And people now, the media would have you believe there's a crime wave now. There's no crime wave whatsoever now. Not in New York. Mm. Not, I mean, not in any of the places they're telling you it really exists. There's some crime here and there. There's, not, there's, there's no wave. There's no, it's all hype designed for clickbait and selling newspapers and getting politicians to be able to do things that we, the public, really don't want them to do. Right. So it's all a very sick, sinister, cynical, and cruel um, plan, but people fall for it. So the Central Park Five happened at a time when there was actually a significant amount of crime. There were eight or nine times as many murders every year as there are now. Mm -hmm. It still wasn't Mad Max, like they would have you believe. Right. But it was a different vibe in the city, and people were a little bit on edge. And... This horrible crime took place in Central Park. So this got everybody up in arms, right? And the cops went wild and just decided to arrest five kids of color, right? Young teenage yeah. boys. They were babies. Not grown men, boys. Right. N- middle exactly. school yeah. kids, yeah. right? <laughs> not, even, not even close to high school yet. So maybe some of them were close to high school. They weren't in high school. So this is where things went really sideways, right? And I've interviewed three of the guys on my podcast. Raymond Santana, I think was the first episode we ever did. Oh, we need to go back and listen to that one, Yvette. Yeah. So it was, um, as people have seen the movie, when they see us, um, or Mm -hmm. anyone who's listened to them on my podcast or any podcast knows, it was a disgusting circus. And the fact is the authorities knew that they didn't do it. And if they didn't know it right off the bat, they knew it real soon after. Because first of all, they had every reason to know that there was one perpetrator, even just from the fact of the grass was wet. There was one set of footprints. There was one, you know, bodily fluids from one person. Not five. Right, not five, yeah. And there was no indication that any of these kids were there, but it didn't matter. They were good for it. And so, you know, they got them to falsely confess, uh, which is a surprisingly common phenomenon. 29% 29% of the first 150 DNA exonerations involve false confessions. And there's no reason to think it's changed since then, right? So this is, this is a very common phenomenon. And it's madness because everyone thinks they would never confess to a crime they didn't commit. But everybody has a breaking point. Of course. They're human. It happens in every city in the country. Just the most surprising thing is how unsurprised we all are by it. It's just like it's just... How sad is that? You know, you can't think of a city that doesn't have their Central Park Five. And there's not, the Central Park Five is is so far from unique. It's just the fact that it was this super high profile case or we wouldn't know about it. Mm-hmm. There are thousands, tens of thousands of other kids who went through the same thing that those children did. So two things I want to say about the Central Park Five. One is because the police and prosecutors willfully ignored the evidence that showed mm-hmm. that it was a single mm-hmm. perpetrator And even though that guy was right on their radar, right, they were investigating him for another very similar crime at the time that this happened. This is this guy, uh, what was his name, Ruiz? Reyes. Reyes, right, Reyes. So this guy had committed a similar crime. It should have been the first place they looked was this guy, right? But they just chose to persecute these kids even after the blood work came back, which was weeks after they had been arrested, and showed that none of them matched, right? right? None of them. It could not have been any of them, and they knew this, and they didn't fucking care. So what happens is Reyes, 
of course, gets away with it. Because don't forget, when the cops frame an innocent person. The real person is going to keep doing. Yeah. Except for in cases where there was no crime committed, right? We have a lot of cases where there's no crime at all. And they frame somebody Ah, who's mostly women that, that suffer that indignity. So Reyes went out and used his time being free, courtesy of the New York Police Department, Mm -hmm. to rape three or four other women and murder one of them in front of her children in her apartment. That goes back to, you know, the big issue, right, is racial profiling. Like, we know how common that is. You're just talking about it, how it's, it's just rampant throughout the system, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the racial profiling is, you know, is a problem. It's one of the common causes of wrongful convictions. Um, It it certainly was in this case. Um, As it turns out, it was a Latino guy who did it. Mm -hmm. They never did bother to investigate him. He ended up confessing after getting into an altercation with one of the guys in prison. Right. And if if any of your listeners in New York, I'm very excited to announce that Dr. Salam, Yusuf Salam, now he's a doctor. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. not a medical doctor, Mm -hmm. but he's a PhD. He's running for city council, which is going to be a great turn of events. He's a beautiful human yeah. that I, yes, I they all follow. Are. Yeah, they all are. And they've, because that's what we do right on Facing Evil. We're we're not all about the salaciousness. We want to know, like, what do you do after the trauma, all of that? You have to move onward and upward and heal, right? And all of these, now they are, you know, young adults, but they were children when this happened. And they have taken that and ran with it in the most beautiful, inspiring way possible. It doesn't erase what happened. You're so right. And that's one of the things that drives me forward in this work is that these are people who have been through hell, literal hell. Like our prison system is hell on earth. And they've been through that through no fault of their own and come out carrying buckets of water for the people they left behind. And what can you say about people like that? Right. I mean, you just, you just want, you want to be a a member of that family. And, and I'm very honored to call many of them, you know, family to me. Um, you know, Amanda Knox calls me big brother and Michelle Murphy is literally like my niece out in Oklahoma. She did 20 years of a life sentence. And I have so many, um, really, really wonderful relationships with, you know, Lorenzo Johnson and just so many of these people are just, they're my freaking heroes and they make me want to work harder and smarter. And so that's what I do. I make speeches sometimes and I say, you know, I've had a lot of number one records, but I've never had one that's as good as walking somebody out of prison. I walked Nelson Cruz out last Thursday in, in, uh, in Queens. It's an unbelievable feeling. It's so wonderful. So you're exactly right, Yvette. These are people who are just the most graceful, gracious optimistic, kind-hearted. There's no bitterness. I'm like, how is this even possible? And you know who said it best? John Huffington. John Huffington did 32 years in Maryland, sentenced to death, and proven actually innocent. Prosecutor has been disbarred for framing him, one of only five that's ever been disbarred for framing an innocent man. And he said it like this, as somebody asked him, man, why aren't you bitter? And he looks at him and he goes, man, That's why the rear view mirror is small, but the windshield's big. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. 
I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. So back to Central Park Five. So one of the things I wanted to say about that, and they're now called the Exonerated Five. And this is, I'm going to... I'm literally, I have my hands in the prayer position. I'm begging the audience. If you get picked up and brought in for questioning, I don't care what they're questioning you for, okay? They could be questioning you for mowing your lawn the wrong way, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, mm -hmm. don't say a word except your name and I want a lawyer and then stop talking until your lawyer gets there. And that's all you do. You can say, am I free to leave? But you might well be. And if you are, leave. Don't stay there. Don't try to be helpful. Don't, I know you might be innocent or this, that. It doesn't matter because they're allowed to lie to you. Never mind if they use violence like they did in the Central Park Five case, and that still happens. Uh, physical violence is still a thing, and at least it's a perceived very real threat. So in America, they can lie to you in the interrogation room, not in other Western countries. They can lie to you, and they lie to you about lying to you, right? They'll say, look, Rasha, you seem like a nice lady, but you know, we got your fingerprints on the knife. We just got it back from the lab. It's your fingerprints. What do you expect us to do? We got. They're allowed to do that. Yes. And they got, really? and listen, on your sister's next door, wow. she says you did it, right? She's here. And you're like, and, and meanwhile, they're keeping you there for 10 hours, 20 hours, no food, no sleep. Maybe you've been up the night before. Maybe you just witnessed a crime. Maybe what? who knows? Or whatever it is. And eventually you'll say anything to get out of that room. Yeah. Don't, uh -huh. don't say nothing. So, Jason. I was listening to, um, you were talking to Karan Butler, which was, by the way, a great interview, the NBA star Karan Butler. And, you know, it moved me when he was talking about how he was fighting to get rid of solitary confinement. And I think about Corey Wise because all of the time that he spent in solitary confinement, and it's a miracle that Corey is, is still who he is today. I mean, what are your feelings about that? Oh, we definitely need to get rid of solitary confinement. It's one of the many, many things we need to fix in our in our gulag system here in America. I mean, gulag. what the hell? Solitary confinement, it's only designed to crush people's souls yeah. and make them go insane. You know, 
a huge percentage of people in our jails and prisons have mental challenges. And then rather than giving them the help that they need, Mm -hmm. instead, we put them in a place where they're guaranteed to get worse. And if you go into these institutions with challenges of that nature, you are not able to follow the millions of rules and, you know, orders that are being thrown at you. So you end up getting deeper and deeper into that hole and then right into the actual hole, as they call it, right, where you're going to be 23 hours a day, you know, in a five by nine foot cell. That would drive anyone crazy. Of course. Yeah. So, yeah, there was this this horrible story about this practice in the South where they were putting these kids that, you know, the age of the Central Park Five kids or Exonerary Five when they went in, in these little cells with nothing, right? There's nothing there except for a bed and a, you know, a window the size of, a, you know, the slit, like the, the size of a pencil or something like that. Why do we do that too? Why are they not allowed to have light? Right. Yeah. And so these kids were getting crazy and they would like literally like scratch a hole in the wall, right? So they ended up taking all of that away and left these kids basically in a bare concrete cell with nothing in it and no light. So they're sitting in the dark. Like, what are we talking about? Like the Count of Monte Cristo sounds good. It's it's true. It's got, yeah. I mean, the UN would out, you know, would go crazy if they knew about this and hopefully they do. And, you know, I heard Amanda Knox uh, on a podcast recently talking about how, you know, people who are in our prisons and jails, if they're there, especially if they're there for a violent crime, it's almost impossible not to argue that they have some sort of a, something's wrong, right? There's wires that aren't mm-hmm. connected properly in their brain. Something happened to them as, in many cases, they had childhood abuse, right? Hurt people, hurt people. Yes. Hurt people, hurt we people. Know, we yeah. know that. I mean, we yeah. know the crimes, there's crimes of opportunity and there's crimes that are caused by, and this is the crazy thing, and I, I've been preaching this in New York where our mayor is running wild, you know, taking away the programs that actually help people and giving all the money to the cops and, and then lying about a crime wave. But, you know, what causes those kind of crimes is desperation, right? When you have shoplifting and yeah. things like that. And what, what stops those crimes from happening is hope. How do we move onward and upward? Like, we know that wrongful convictions are going to happen, have happened, happened to the exonerated five. Thank the gods and goddesses that they did get out finally. But what can we do to make this not happen? Or how do we drive those numbers down? How do we change? Well, what listeners can do is, first of all, when you get that jury duty notice, don't crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. If you're listening to this show, then you're you're a lot more educated and you're the type of person we need on juries. Next thing is vote. And I know people are tired of hearing, oh, everybody tells me to vote, 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 vote. You know what? These local elections, DA races, are critically important because DAs have massive and virtually unchecked power. So... When the DA's race in your area is happening, especially if you live in a smaller community, but even if you live in a big city, not that many people vote in those races. Your vote matters a lot. And so look into the candidates. It's not that hard. You know, go to a paper that you trust Mm -hmm. um, in your area. There are very few to go around these days, but if there's one or ask somebody who you trust so you don't have to do all the research yourself if you don't want to. But usually it's a pretty clear cut choice and vote in people who actually care about these issues and who aren't out just pretending that this is just a a, some sort of weird scorecard and that these people that are the defendants are just there to service their political ambitions or their career goals. And that's that's unfortunately the way a lot of prosecutors operate, not all of them. So 
judges' races, DAs' races, things like that. And then what we have to do on a more macro level, we have to educate people. And we created a show called Wrongful Conviction Junk Science. And junk science is, I, I learned so much listening to it. I don't host that one that was hosted by my friend Josh Dubin. And on junk science, we, t- we teach people about how these junk sciences lead to wrongful convictions day in, day out, all over the country. Like these things are absolute nonsense. And yet they're allowed in courtrooms in all 50 states every day. My point being that, to Yvette's question, once you understand that these sciences are not real, that CSI is a fictional show that doesn't have any relationship to reality, and the same is true of most of those other crime shows, right? They're entertaining. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I know people who play a drinking game when they watch Law and Order, lawyers, a group of lawyers, and every time there's a constitutional violation, they take a shot and they don't even make it to the first commercial break because they're all asleep. <laughs> I mean, these shows are are, are unfortunately giving people this false sense of security that these forensic people uh, are accurate and these sciences are working and the authorities are getting all the justice that you want and the bad guys off the street and you can sleep safely at home. Everything's good. So, you know, the idea that science constantly evolves and that things we know now we didn't know before and then textbooks are rewritten and new protocols are established. But Law looks backwards. Science goes forwards. Law looks backwards. A judge will have a, somebody in their courtroom and they're saying, you know, well, it's a bite mark case. And then you'll have a lawyer like an Innocence Project lawyer, like Chris Fabricant, who wrote this fantastic book called Junk Science. Um, if you're a book reader, read Junk Science by Chris Fabricant. He'll come in and say, well, we've proven in scientific study after study that bite marks have no bearing. Like, no, there's not a human being alive who can tell you from a bite mark whether it was you or Yvette they can't even tell if it's an animal or a human or whether it's a bite mark at all. And yet somewhere in this country today, there's a guy in a lab coat up on a stand going, I'm a forensic, this, that, pathologist, and I'm telling you, this is Yvette's bite mark. There's nobody else that could have made this bite mark. And that's the way it is. And the jury's sitting there going, oh, my God, well, that she's guilty as hell. They believe what they're being told. So I think... You know, when you serve on a jury, you need to understand these things. And also you need to understand that in many of these cases, there's no other corroborating evidence. Maybe there's a jailhouse snitch, but there's nothing else. Maybe there's a false confession, but there's nothing else. Maybe there's some forensic guy telling you these stories uh, very authoritatively, but there's nothing else. And there's controverting evidence as well. And then you got to remember that it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. It's supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt. But those principles are just words the way our system operates right now. So those are some of the things that people can do to help stem the tide of this scourge of wrongful convictions. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, 
and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do with the Innocence Project? I know you spoke about it earlier, but what specifically do you do and how does it help? Well, what the Innocence Project does is the Innocence Project, we have an intake department. We get hundreds of letters a month, as you can imagine, from people who want us to uh, champion their case. The majority of those people are innocent when we research it, but not all of them, certainly. Some people are just bored. (laughs) So we take on cases. Most of the cases involve um, DNA evidence, but not all of them. And then, you know, often we're able to exonerate people, although it takes a long time. And that's why we have to stop these things from happening in the first place. Even the best case scenario, it takes a long, long time, even with a great team, even with an Innocence Project. Then there are Innocence Projects all over the country. I'm on the board of the New York Innocence Project, which is the original one. So the other work, that there's the micro and the macro. And the macro work is, you know, arguably the most important work because the Innocence Project works to change practices and to change laws in order to help make the system fairer and better for everyone and make us all safer in the process, as we talked about before, by making sure that the wrong person doesn't go to jail and the, the right one, for lack of a better word, remains free. So, you know, that involves working on changing eyewitness procedures and changing, you know, forensic practices and changing the man I mentioned before, Chris Fabricant, the author of the book, Junk Science. I'm going to plug it again because I, I, I think yes. it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. um, He's the strategic litigation director. It's a position that I funded in honor of my dad when he passed away about uh, 11 or 12 years ago. Some of the work he does is Chris will take an individual case of someone who was wrongfully convicted, like Keith Allen Harward, who served 34 years on a bite mark case. And then when he's exonerated, he'll go and use that case to help drive policy change and try to get legislators to pay attention. Because, you know, when you have an actual human being, it's harder to ignore it. Beautiful. Fantastic. Jason, what is the light in the darkness for the Exonerated Five for you? It's an incredible time to be having this conversation. They just dedicated the gate that those kids walked into the park on that fateful night is now the Exonerated Five gate. I did not know that. Oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole whole ceremony this winter. And of course, you know, we can't mention the Exonerated Five without talking about the fact that the 
evil orange clown who was foul, befouling the White House up until a couple of years ago. But back when, at the time of the original arrest, he took out a full page ad in the New York newspaper saying that we should bring back the death penalty so we can execute these kids. Wow. And he then fought against them getting compensation after they were proven innocent. Um, and he has, you know, always doubled down on his you know, nonsensical, uh, wrong-headed and disgusting uh, rhetoric regarding the fact that these kids, uh, who everybody knows, and it's been proven scientifically in the court of law, didn't commit this crime. Did you see what your beautiful friend, Dr. Youssef Salam, said yesterday? So powerful. What did he say? So this is straight from the um, NBC News article that came out just this week. It says, and I quote, Salam doubled down on condemning Trump's actions, writing, quote, you were wrong then and you are wrong now, end quote. He also wrote he will not resort to hatred, bias or racism and that he wishes Trump no harm. Rather, I'm putting my faith in the judicial system to seek out the truth, he wrote. I hope that you exercise your civil liberties to the fullest and that you get what the exonerated five did not get a presumption of innocent and a fair trial. How powerful is that? Beautiful. And that's from Claretta Bellamy, NBC News, Dr. Youssef Salam. And they took out an ad in the newspaper, um, The Exonerated Five, I guess. I, I think uh, Dr. Salam was the one who spearheaded that. Yes, he did. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's great to see the, the five guys, um, you know, doing as well as they are. They still face all sorts of struggles, as anybody of would who's been through this nightmare yeah. that they've been through. But they are they are survivors. They are uh, beacons of light. They're my friends, and I'm certainly proud to know them and to work with them. And, you know, it's uh, it's just one of the blessings of the work that I do is getting, like I said, to be around those guys, you know, so. And that is the light. That is the light right there. One more plug. There's a book that just came out by Justin Brooks, who is the founder of the California Innocence Project. It's called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. So it's a really powerful book. Justin is a great lawyer, a great friend of the movement, and a great man. And I, I strongly recommend this book for anyone who wants to learn more about this amazing topic. It's called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent by Justin Brooks. Oh, my God. It's been amazing having you. As we say in Hawaiian, mahalo nui loa, my brother. You are you are doing your thing. Yeah, well, right back at you, and thanks for having me on here. And uh, I'm excited to hear our episode. Today's message of hope and healing goes out to Corey Wise, Antron McRae, Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, and Youssef Salam. They were just kids between the ages of 14 and 16. And when the wheels of the criminal legal system ran them over, it changed them in some ways that can never be fixed. And today's Umua also goes out to Trisha Miley, whose life was turned horrifically upside down that night in April 1989. But yet she still somehow manages to persevere. She even ran the New York Marathon in 1995, saying that she felt like she had, quote, reclaimed her park. The Central Park Five now go by the Exonerated Five. Raymond, Kevin, and Youssef have become activists and pushed for videotaped interrogations. 
Youssef serves on the board for the Innocence Project, which is dedicated to freeing the innocent and preventing wrongful convictions. And Corey works as a social justice reform advocate. And in 2014, he donated $140,000 of his settlement to the Innocence Project. And Antron is a loving husband and father of six and now lives a quiet life. All six of these individuals have survived tragedy and put in the work to make the world a better place. And so to all of you who do the work, onward and upward, Imua. Imua. Well, that's our show for today. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there's a case you'd like for us to cover. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one small request, if you haven't already, please find us on iTunes and give us a good rating and a good review if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time, aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Carolyn Talmadge. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.